Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, a podcast about gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Anthony. Hey, this is Chris. And this is Daniel. Welcome to the episode, everybody. This is episode 27. Drew could not make it this week. He is gaming, as we all should be. Um, but this week we're going to be talking about a lot of big things, a lot of big news. Um, and we actually got a lot of games to the table. And the tablets, I should add. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, first up, some really, really big news. Uh, this is actually very exciting for all of us. This is something we've been working on for a little while. Um, when we started this podcast, this was one of the things we talked about that we thought would just be totally cool, like legitimize the whole thing. Um, did not think that would happen necessarily nine months ago, but it has how happened. We are now proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Which... Assuming that you probably found us through the Dice Tower ne Network, you probably knew already, but we're very excited about this. <laughs> if you're one of our 400 or so listeners who did not find us through the Dice Tower Network, we are now on the Dice Tower Network. Um, and if you don't know what that is, it's just this awesome conglomerate of podcasts, video reviews, and uh, other media kind of all run by the godfather of gaming reviews himself, Tom Vassell. And uh, we're really happy about this. It's really cool. So it's it's exciting. Thank you, Tom, for having us on. Um, really looking forward to just continuing to put out awesome content and uh, be part of this community. Yeah, I remember way back when when I started to get involved in uh, hobby gaming. And the first thing is you look at these enormous games. You're like, how am I going to figure out how to play these things? Wow, this is a great game. What do I do? What what plays with this? You know, what's the next step with this? And any type of search whatsoever you find the Dice Tower because Tom Vassell just puts out an enormous amount of content, covers pretty much everything, and 
really high quality reviews. He really loves the game. He's really involved in the community and does it from a very kind of person-to-person type of interaction. Yeah. This is really a big deal. And for those of you who have been listening to us already, this means we've gone mainstream. So either you, you know, have to stop listening to us and start complaining to your friends about how you liked us back before we got cool, <laughs> or you can acknowledge that it's it's a board gaming review show and it's it we're still not cool. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to interject, but you yeah. did it for me. <laughs> hey, board games are cool, right? No? Yes. To everybody right. in this room. Yeah. yeah. Well, of, of the people what? surveyed in the sample size, <laughs> 100% say it is cool. I agree. And uh, so we want to thank Tom again and um, Rob Serling and, and uh, Jeff Engelstein. So if you go to the Dice Tower Network and you scroll all the way to the bottom, you will find our logo and our RSS feed. So you can kind of hook on to us and check out all the other great podcasts there. And we're hoping to bring you more content as time goes on and hoping to get to see you all at the upcoming conventions. So definitely listen, promote, rate us on iTunes, and just get the word out there because this little little podcast that we've been doing is kind of growing. The anonymous is becoming known. <laughs> Which is ironic, and yes, we know it's ironic. You don't need to point out how ironic it is. Sure you do. It's kind of funny. <laughs> All right. So thanks again, everybody. This is awesome. And it's, you know, it's because of listeners like you. On slightly less exciting news, actually very sad news, and we posted this on our Facebook feed. And if you're on Staten Island or near Staten Island, you probably saw it on Facebook. Or hopefully this wasn't the case, but maybe you even drove by and saw. Um, our local, friendly local gaming store, Myriad Games, closed down just a couple weeks ago. Um, and it was, it was a sad time for all of us because it's, it's where we all met. Um, it's where I got into board games. It's where I met a lot of really fantastic people. And, um, you know, the store will be missed. I know when I started with the Staten Island Board Gamers as part of the meetup, um, Sherry does a great meetup job. And I remember meeting people, just a small group of people. And then there was talk about a local board gaming store opening here on Staten Island, which was a tremendous development. And I remember we walked in the first time and said, it's a store full of just board games, just hobby board games. And if honestly, if you've ever been to any other kind of gaming store, it's usually like 90% magic or 90% miniatures or it's 90% kind of kids' toys and maybe a couple of hobby games kind of thrown in there. But here was a store with great hobby games and our little community of just maybe a dozen or so people kind of exponentially grew and uh, met a lot of great people, had a lot of great times. That was also the place where we did a lot of recordings for the podcast. We did our Extra Life event of 25 hours to support the store and support um, children in need. And it was really a nice opportunity to really connect with people in a meaningful way, and it's definitely going to be missed. It, it was a warm and welcoming environment. It's Again, it's where we all met. It's I went to lurk there once while the meetup was going on, pretending I didn't know it was going on. And I think, Chris, I think you were the one who invited me in to play, actually. Sure. And uh, it was a great environment to spend some time with some great people, and it's really going to be missed. And I think that's one of the things, too, that most people outside the hobby, like we were just talking about the Dice Tower Network, is it is really such a strong community, a strong family, and you really do get to know people very quickly by playing games with them. You know, their character def- definitely comes out in, that, in those moments. 
I started off as just a regular meetup member, moved to an event organizer, then moved up to assistant organizer, and really just loved the opportunity to, hey, that guy back there with the curly hair who doesn't believe he knows what's going on, let's let's grab him to play some games. So it was a nice opportunity, and it'll be missed. And uh, so thank all of you who um, had part of that to make that kind of community grow and that store. So thanks all. Absolutely. All right, uh, let's move on from sad news and start talking about, well, I guess equally sad news, the games that are going to be draining our wallets very soon. (laughs) Acquisition Disorder Corner. All right, so what kind of games have you guys been looking at that uh, you absolutely must have or play? Uh, Honestly, for me, other than a few Kickstarters, which are in the ether still. Uh, Most of my money has been going to sleeving my old games. That's cost a surprisingly large amount of money when one of them is legendary. So, uh, I've had to put a little temporary pause on my buying to make sure I maintain the quality of my current collection. Yeah, yeah. uh, That's one of the things that I don't think anybody realizes when they get into this hobby, is how much it's going to cost to keep take care of your stuff. Like sleeves, yes. Um, storage solutions. Storage solutions. Mm-hmm. Paint if you paint them. Bags. Which I do. Bags. Uh, boxes for cards. My attack wing stuff is in a shoebox. <laughs> I need to fix that. Yeah. I actually have this pretty cool box I bought at a Home Depot. Show it to you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I need to take a look at those actually, see how well they fit. <laughs> it's not the one everybody recommends, but it works just fine. It was like $5. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I have actual games that I've been looking at. Uh, now, actual games. That actual I've been looking games. At. Yeah, but I, I mean, I can't <laughs> buy them, so it doesn't actually matter, does it? I got three, three promo cards for a game I have never heard of what? in my Dragon Shield sleeves. So, <laughs> there you go. There we go. I've been slowly acquiring a collection of this game. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get to, like, ten and then want it more than anything. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's the strategy, right? It's, yeah. They're going to get you. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of cards, where are the Dice Masters? Man. Come on, WizKids! Man, I need a hit. Come on, give me some dice. Gotta roll some dice. What are the dice coming in? Anthony, man, you got some dice? <laughs> Do you know where I can get some dice? <laughs> I heard you got some dice. <sighs> They're nowhere, man. They're nowhere. There's still no there's still no starter kits anywhere. Uh, I was just at the complete strategist the other day, and they had more boosters, but still no starters. And they could put my name on a waiting list, which I never want to do, which I should. But I don't know when these things are coming out. But and to be honest, like I'm not so sold on the game yet. But the insanity that have surrounded this game as far as trying to find a copy of the base set. I've never seen anything like it in recent, you know, hobby history. You just hear people going, I spo- I went to this le- this Target, and they said they may get a shipment in, and we got to stand outside, and then, well, wait, and then, you know, if they don't have it, we can talk to somebody else, because he has a brother's sister who says that that store might get a copy. And if we get sent a copy, that it's just been outrageous as far as the desire for these games. I mean, obviously, this has a lot to do with the IP, um, Avengers is such a huge movie, such a huge property. X-Men, obviously, are, is huge, and the new movie's coming out. And, you know, if you've ever played Quarriors before, 
the game has a really kind of simple introduction and appeal. And once again, like we said before, a buck a booster, it's kind of hard to beat that. You get two dice and you get two cards. And it has that tournament feel. It has that CCG kind of intensity to it as far as, you know, hoping that you're going to pull a rare at some point. So there's a lot of talk about this. WizKids did release another statement talking about the upcoming shipments that the desire is so great for this now, which is crazy, that they're actually, instead of having these things shipped out, they're being flown to the U.S. and will be dropped off in the West Coast and the Midwest. So those areas of the country will see the game first, and then eventually I think they'll get across to the East Coast. But reports of this game are few and far between, and even podcasts such as ours and many others are still kind of, I guess, chomping at the bit. (laughs) (laughs) So this game might be eventually hitting someone's table at some point. I'm going to get it. Oh, are you? <laughs> I'm just not paying more than retail for it. So. No. And the other thing, too, with the game is, if you really are that interested in picking this up, you can go on the WizKids Wiz website and download some of the cards. So you can actually kind of do a print-and-play kind of version of it. Now, obviously, it's not going to have the dice, and they're just basically giving you the action cards. But if you've picked up some promos, and I'm sorry, if you picked up some booster packs... And you've downloaded the basic cards and the sheets and things like that. You can, I guess, get somewhat of a feel, but once again, it's still lacking the actual game. Yeah. So probably in the next episode, this will be acquisition disorder again. Maybe by the next episode. So let's say mid-June, maybe we'll be reviewing this. We'll see. <laughs> well, they said that the base sets are coming out, probably be here in June, and then the boost another reprint of the boosters or another wave of the boosters will be coming out in july and it's interesting though because there's such a desire for this but at some point it's just going to drop off and i'm wondering what's going on in WizKids headquarters because it's this kind of thing where they're cheering or are they panicking as far as we're going to lose the market at some point yeah i do wonder that if they have these long delays especially at the beginning right 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 at the launch of the game buzz might die down before the product actually hits the market. I mean, right now, all the buzz is good, but if it just becomes a thing people don't even bother talking about anymore, that's going to be a serious problem. Well, the media is talking about it. Well. That's us. Oh, God. (laughs) We're the media now. (laughs) We're in a network. (laughs) All right. Some other hot games coming out. Um, Well, I don't know if they're hot or not. I just, I want them. So uh, there are actually two games kind of based around this whole uh, Seven Samurai, Kuro Kurosawa mythos. Um, The first, Seven Swords, uh, was a Kickstarter game, Game Salute. And that one wrapped up, I want to say, two weeks ago, so end of April. And they say they're shipping in June, so it should be out pretty soon. But that one looks pretty cool. It's, you know, someone plays the the, the village side, which is Samurai, and someone plays the bandits, one-on-one kind of combat trying to protect the village. If you know the story of the Seven Samurai, it's this village gets harassed by uh, bandits, goes out and hires Seven Samurai to protect them, and the Seven Samurai do everything they possibly can to do so, um, eventually successfully defeating the bandits. But in the game, who knows? Could be either way. Uh, Samurai Spirit, the other upcoming samurai game, this one from Antoine Bauza and Funforge, that one is a co-op, plays two to seven players, and everybody's a samurai, so nobody has to play the bandits in that particular game. Um, same theme, seems like very different mechanics, 
Of course you want to play the samurai. Who wants to play the bandits? It's... Come on, samurais. Come on. It's cool. Yeah, I am a little more interested in the uh, the Bowser game just because, A, it's two to seven players. Like, I don't need another two-player game. It's Anton Bowser. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. It is Fun Forge, though, so who knows what they'll do to the dice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still have my fingers crossed about uh, Tokaido, so let's hope good stuff will be coming. Yeah. <laughs> but, um... But it looks pretty cool, so I'm going to probably be playing both at some point over the summer, because I love, 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 love this movie. I love Kurosawa. I love everything about it. Even when it's bad, I still love it. So, I'm sure it'll be. Did Kurosawa ever do anything bad? No. Well, I'm not talking about him. Oh, okay. I was like, what? What are you saying? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Making it uh, a Seven Samurai-themed game where you play as the bandits, it kind of reminds me of those RPGs made, like, the Buffy RPG, where, like, Oh yeah, no. Someone wants to be anything but the Slayer in the game titled Buffy Vampire Slayer. No, no. Please let me play as random high school student number three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one's a little tough, but we'll see how it plays. I mean, I'm gonna try them out. We'll see how they play. But I'm, they're definitely both on my radar, big time. And this is a great idea too, because this is kind of an untapped, great story that obviously has been, as you said, recast, reimagined multiple times. Why not a board game at this point? Yeah, yeah, and I would love to see the uh, the Western version too, Magnificent Seven. Sure. So that'd be cool. Oh, yeah. Which could be the exact same game, but uh, I like to see the uh, the anime version, Samurai Seven. Oh yeah, like Which crazy is... weird steampunk. Oh, so yeah. good, so <laughs> very good. Anything else, guys? Well, I was wondering about the uh, upcoming Ticket to Ride, the massive kind of collector's anniversary edition. Is anybody looking at that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> is that a game you would like? Yes. Just a little bit? Yeah, just a little bit. I mean, this is... um, None of us actually own Ticket to Ride, which is ridiculous, because... How did that happen? I don't know. This is like one of those staples that... You know what I think it is? I think it's the iPhone and the iPad version is just so phenomenal that you, you forget about the board game, which is a little bit of a problem, because the board game is great. It's nice to play with the trains and have everything out there. We got to play that at PAX East, but... Yeah, how does none of us own that game? And actually, I think as far as just the group, we were talking about the store, I think there was only one of us who actually even owned Ticket to Ride in the multiple copies. Yeah. Yeah, and he had literally every map for it. But the, he was, I think he may have been the only one, at least, that had it, you know, brought it around. Yeah. I mean, it tends to be one of those types of games where once you, you start just start getting into the hobby... Like, it's a nice starter kind of entry gateway kind of game. So you play Catan, you play Ticket to Ride, you play Carcassonne, and then you kind of move on, and you forget about it. But that's really a nice game, especially if it plays with such a wide range of people. Yeah, I love it a lot. I've played two tournaments now. And I remember <laughs> when Myriad, when they were going to have the first tournament, we spent like two weeks saying, this is not a tournament game. And then after the tournament, I was like, that was an amazing tournament game. Was it was one of the better tournaments they had. So Because yeah, you get really tight scores at the end, and then you don't know what people have as far as their their tickets that they score, so their route tickets. So I don't know if you've scored all five or if you just scored one, and so you're going to lose a lot of points. And then who has the longest track or who has the most tickets, depending on what version you play. So, yeah, that was probably one of the best tournament games that we played. Yeah, I think so. I have only played it on the iPad. Oh, but the... <laughs> talk a little bit, Anthony, talk a little bit about the, the anniversary edition. What does that come with? Uh, okay, so Anniversary Edition is basically everything Ticket to Ride done better. So bigger map, new art, uh, individualized trains for each character, 
So it's, it's actually colorblind friendly now, which is kind of cool. Um, you get the full-size cards. You get the 1910 expansion. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because if you buy the base game, and this is something anybody who's ever bought this game knows, um, it comes with these tiny, ridiculous, super small cards. And as you play the game, you might have 10, 15, 20 cards in your hand, and they're the size of your thumb. So the 1910 expansion gives you full-size cards. So most people consider it a necessity to buy that with the base game. Otherwise, it's a pain to play. So them throwing that in here is kind of a no-brainer, but they, if they hadn't, it would... I mean, it's been 10 years and people are still getting those tiny cards, so I guess nobody would be surprised. Um, but it looks really good. I mean, this really beautiful, finely polished version of the game. Kind of the ultimate version, so to speak. So if you don't own it... It, it may very well be like the perfect version to buy. If you do own it, I guess it depends on how often you play. Um, and Days of Wonder does such a great job on their components. Every game that they've ever produced, I've just kind of like been in awe. And this anniversary edition, like Anthony was saying, they actually have, instead of just having these little plastic generic molds of a certain color, they actually have individual... So I think there's... What, what are we looking at? Four different? Five different? Five different types of trains yeah so five different types of trains so you have like the circus train and they're all red and they all have like the little animal heads kind of popping out or the or black so they're all coal trains and they're really nice little kind of plastic sculpts i mean it's almost toy quality yeah so, and you get this little tin that fits all the 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 trains in plus the tin itself is nicely decorated and the and the board is bigger which is nice because when you're playing ticket to ride it's always a little bit odd to kind of be like let me look all the way over there to see if I can kind of make that route. So it's really a nice addition. People have been talking about this. It hasn't been released yet, but um, I know it's something Anthony's been on, has it on the radar for quite some time, and it's something you should definitely check out. Yeah. I should have pre-ordered it, and then I didn't, and now I probably can't get it. <laughs> that is like the saddest story, man. That's the story of every game on this acquisition disorder. Like, oh, Dice Masters, that would have been good. I should have pre-ordered that. Well, I didn't. Now I can't have it. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Um, you should listen to our podcast. I know, right? We were talking about this five months ago. I, I should have pre-ordered it. <laughs> you only podcast, edit it, and post it, but you uh, don't listen to it that much. <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, in about a month, if... I can't find a copy. That'll be the new Dice Masters. <laughs> there well, is no escape. Yes. Speaking about things we should be picking up early, let's talk about some games you want to kind of kick the habit a little bit. Kicking the Habit. So we talk about Kickstarter all the time, and uh, obviously it's a big part of the hobby now. It's kind of here to stay. It's not a fad. Uh, so we want to kind of throw in a new segment here where we talk about some of the games that are upcoming, some of the ones we've already talked about and how they're doing, and then um, every now and then a preview of something we've played or seen coming up. So this is our inaugural edition of Kicking the Habit. Chris, what is on the docket? Well, we've been talking about Kickstarter since the very beginning and about different games that have been popping up, stuff that we would love to have, stuff that scares us because of the multiple levels and how if it if you just, you know, put a little more money in, you'll get the extra cards and then you'll get the extra tokens. And if you get that, then you have to go to another level. And then next thing you know, you're at $1,500 because clearly you need to have all of the Crossmaster figures because, you know, 
it was only five dollars more for the extra little so trying to get into what's going on there and obviously kickstarter indiegogo and a lot of these crowdfunding sites have been so popular and so beneficial for the industry but there tends to be a little bit of the dark side to this too that doesn't often get talked about so the first game i want to talk about that was hitting kickstarter a little bit was first and goal now if you're familiar, we've talked about this a little bit before. First and Goal is a football-themed game where you're rolling kind of handfuls of dice. You get a team. The team has uh, passing dice, running dice, and defensive dice. And depending on the team, it's a little bit asymmetrical because some teams have a great offense, some teams have a great defense, and they kind of play integral as far as the game is concerned. So r Games decided they want to do a digital version of this and put this out on Kickstarter. And the fans rushed in and then rushed completely out. So they were looking for about $25,000 to kickstart a digital version. It was going to be like an iPad game, but it was also going to be in other different platforms. And they made $5,000. And it failed. And it failed epically. Um one of the big problems with it that they didn't have a demo version at least something to show the fans of what it was going to look like so they did they had some pictures but they didn't have anything that anyone could play and honestly if you've played this game before what's really great about this game is the handful of dice that you're throwing each and every time so to have a game that's on the ipad where you're not having those dice and you're not having like the kind of magnetic board and the nice little components with it i think was kind of a letdown for most people and the fact that they weren't really upgrading the graphics or putting NFL teams or adding something more of a flavor to it kind of dropped the bottom out. So R&R has been talking about actually um, releasing this on Steam. So if you're a PC gamer, you might actually have a chance to help them on the Steam platform because if you go to Steam right now, they're, they have this kind of little survey about would you pay for this game on Steam? Now, as we know, Steam has been a great platform for indie games everywhere. And hopefully this gets picked up because First and Goal is such a great game. But they're going to need to do something a little bit more in order to capture people's attention, especially in a world full of color- colorful miniatures and great artwork. Yeah, that's the funny thing about Kickstarters. I think if you come in half-baked without like a clear idea of what people um, want to see, then it makes it a little harder. I know like when I backed Canterbury... Um, it it got over the line, but I like, think just barely. Like I backed it early because I'd played it, but a lot of people were concerned because he put it up there, and there weren't a lot of videos, and there weren't a lot of previews, and there weren't a lot of stretch goals. Um, you really have to think out your Kickstarter. You might have the most amazing product in the world, but if you can't show people that, then it's gonna crash and burn. And you have to have some reviews from like independent podcasters, but also you need to have you know show the gameplay. I mean, we had the, uh, Anthony and I had the opportunity to actually sit down and play with the creator, Andrew Parks, and see how great the game was. But for those people on Kickstarter, they only had this kind of sparse graphical representation of what things were going to look like. And that really does heart, hurt the game industry a little bit because you don't know what you're backing. And if you do get something that's not quality, you're going to be a little hesitant to back the next project. So speaking about failures as far as Kickstarter is concerned... There was a Kickstarter recently for Asylum Playing Cards. This was kind of a nice, decorative, high-quality set of your standard 52 playing cards with high-quality artwork. You see this a lot on Kickstarter, a lot of different versions and artworks of your standard 52, so you can play all types of games. 
Now, what happened here was the Kickstarter actually funded, and that was great, and they reached their goals. In fact, they actually did quite quite well, and they went above what they were looking for. They were looking for fifteen thousand, and they raised over twenty five thousand for the game. So Kickstarter went well. People backed it. It funded above and beyond. All's good. And then the creator disappeared, and no one received their game. So here were these packs of cards that were supposed to go out to the backers, and nothing was happening whatsoever. So actually right now, um, Washington State's Attorney General filed a lawsuit on behalf of the backers to sue the creator, I think at $2,000 or so for each individual backer, to try to receive compensation for this failed Kickstarter. Now, a lot of people have been talking about this possible eventuality of Kickstarter failing because it, it's been doing so well, and the concern is always, what happens if it doesn't? What happens if it does crash? And we do have a situation where the designer is nowhere to be found, and all these people put their money in, and no one can get the deck of cards. Now, thankfully, it's a small amount, although to the backers, I'm sure that's not a happy at all to have lost that money but kickstarter is saying two things one they're saying hey the backers are responsible because you know when you back something you take the responsibility as far as if the game or the product does not happen you're kind of out of luck there's nothing they can do about that personally but also at the same time if you're putting up a project there you are signing a commit with kickstarter to actually produce this project so this game, this, this deck of cards not being produced is actually looking bad for everybody. So it's really a bad situation. Their ability to keep the creator uh, uh, to the terms of their contract is really going to be a significant factor in determining how stable Kickstarter will end up being in the long term. Right? If they're not able to enforce that contract uh, successfully, and if they're not able to either get compensation for the backers or get the product made as was initially agreed, this could be a serious problem for Kickstarter's credibility. We talked about this a little while ago, the doom that came to Atlantic City that Cryptozoic picked up and kind of saved the day. You know, this is always a possibility. And sometimes, especially with these smaller, independent, you know, self-publishing projects, you really want to help these, you know, dreamers, these creators who are going to create this great, great project and just need a little support. You really feel that dedication, that commitment, and that connection. And at the same time, there is that failure. And it's probably not the first failure that we've seen, but this is, I think, the first lawsuit that we've seen at this level. Yeah, and it's a tough one because, uh, you know, Kickstarter plasters it everywhere. It's on every project on there. This is an investment. You're not buying a product. You're investing in basically in a company and you're return if the investment pays off is the product so it's kind of a tricky you know the way it works but um you know if the courts decide to redefine how that's interpreted it could change some things i don't think it means the end of kickstarter by any means it just means you know new rules being put in place basically but to that end you know if you are a backer even if this lawsuit you know fails completely um it is kind of your responsibility. So, you know, take some time, do your research. Don't throw a ton of your own money at somebody if you if they don't have a product to show. They've never posted a project before, and you have no idea or way of knowing if they're ever going to deliver. Um, you know, I feel comfortable backing a game by somebody I've met in person and I've played the game, 
and or uh, you know a company like FunForge and Antoine Bauza, whether or not it's exactly what I want when it shows up in the mail, I don't know, but I know I'm going to get it. Whereas some random guy who I've never heard of and it's custom playing cards, probably should take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, I mean, I worry that the buyer beware attitude is kind of cuts against this most significant contribution of Kickstarter, which is this ability to allow independent creators who would otherwise not have the support structure required to become creators, right, to produce their content. And uh, if we have to worry about these individual creators as being fundamentally unstable, and if we're not, uh, if we don't have access to at least legal recourse to get something as the, con you know, those are sort of the conditions of our investment, right, that compromises a lot of the value of Kickstarter to me. It's definitely a challenge because, like I said, it's the independent game designers that you do really want to support. I mean, there's a lot of large companies there that it's nice to have them there. It's nice to maybe get a promo that you wouldn't get normally or get a game that, you know, they're not too sure about. So you're kind of helping them with a pre-order, which is a little sketchy sometimes. But it's really that independent person that wants to create something and you want to support them. And I guess it's these situations where someone just fails straight out that kind of, you know, it doesn't ruin, you know, the greater community, but it does kind of give it a black eye. And that's, that's kind of sad because they're doing some great work out there. And speaking about great work, one of the people that we've actually got to meet and got to play a game about, um, we've got a chance to play Minion, which at the time of this recording, I think only has about a day or so left so when by the time you hear this it'll be fully funded and they actually surpassed their funding um, we actually got a chance to meet Daniel and I think and also Daniel there was actually two Daniels um, one who did the creation of the game and one who was doing the art and Minion was a great game we're looking forward to that coming out a bunch of really great guys and like we were saying supporting the independent game designer to get their work out there because looks like a fun game we got to play a little promo demo version of it so Congratulations to all of you guys and that great work, and um, I can't wait to see it on the shelves. So we'll have some better projects for you next time as far as the happy side of it, but we'll always try to bring you the news as far as what's going on there, what to keep an eye out for, and what to kind of be wary about. Yeah, plenty to be wary about, but also some gems in there too. Oh yeah? All right, so next up, let's look at some of the games we have been playing and uh, a little, some quick reviews. So what's been hitting the table, Anthony? At the table this week. All right, so this week, uh, we're going to start things off a little differently. We've done this before. We're going to do it again because it is hitting the tablets because one of the biggest, most successful, and in my opinion, funnest games to hit uh, the iPad in very recent memory is Hearthstone. So Daniel and I have been playing this like nobody's business. Uh, I don't know how good either of us actually are, but we love it. So we're going to talk. I think it's interesting because it is, it's an original game. It's digital. It's kind of, there's been this trend toward these kind of digital collectible card games, but this is kind of the epitome as Blizzard likes to do. Yeah, it, it was very exciting to me to see how well Blizzard transitioned from their more tried and true methods to a an entirely different model of gameplay uh, and they were very good at recognizing you know, while we want to keep this intellectual property intact and we want to make it thematic they were very good at making a game mechanic that 
felt unique and worked very well. Yeah, this game is so deceptively simple and yet so not simple at all. Like, I played it back in the beta on my computer and it didn't really draw me in at the time. Um, I played, I don't know, however many, maybe got to like level six in the practice matches or something. I don't remember. Like, I didn't even unlock all the all the different characters. But uh, it didn't really capture me because it is really simple. You start the game with X number of cards, you play a card, you draw a card, you play a card, you draw a card. It's just, you know, there's very few mechanics actually involved, except there's so much depth to the game once you start actually exploring what you can do. Yeah, I mean, there are entire communities and rival communities, all of which uh, are, are centered around these incredibly detailed accounts of how one ought to build your deck, given the current meta, which is the way that other people are playing right now. And if you're more than a few weeks behind in this sort of meta curve, you're out, right? You're just, you're playing the wrong deck for today. Yeah, yeah, it's that magic meets the, if you ever played like PvP in World of Warcraft, basically like that. And then there's seasons in the game, they're constantly adjusting, and this is one of the interesting things, though, because it's digital, so magic, let's say you throw, they throw an OP card out there. That card is in the game forever. They printed it. Maybe it gets banned from tournaments, but it's in there. Um, this game, they can nerf the card, you know? Speaking of which, Unleash the Hounds has moved from a two-cost to a three-cost card. <laughs> and everyone who doesn't play a hunter just breathed a sigh of relief. Yes, I do not play a hunter. I hate hunters. For those of you who are not familiar with this card, it is a ridiculously powerful hunter card. It's one of those cards that was in every single Hunter deck, no matter what the build of that deck was. And that's a good indication that a, a game element is overpowered, is if every build possible still uses that element. Yeah. Um, and it's a slight move, it's a small move, but it's going to make a big difference to a lot of the Hunter decks because they depend upon these sort of bursts, right? And early bursts. Early bursts, being able to play a lot of stuff at once, and this slows them down just long enough for other people to get a chance at the table. All right, so there are two major modes of Hearthstone play. There's Constructed, where you come in with decks that you've created beforehand from cards in your collection. And there's Arena, which is like a Magic the Gathering draft tournament, where you uh, make a deck out of cards that you just sort of pull from the ether after you buy an arena ticket, which you can buy with an in-game currency, and you can use out-of-game currency, but there's no need to really do that. The exciting thing about arena is that it's always a little bit random. You get to use cards that may not be in your deck or in your collection otherwise, uh, and it pushes you to try new things and learn new strategies, as well as if you make it up to seven wins, you will absolutely make back your money and be able to play more as well as get some additional benefits like new packs for new cards in your collection. The basic mechanics are going to be familiar to any of you who have ever played a card game. Right, you draw a hand. Uh, if you go first, you get a hand of three cards. If you go second, you get a hand of uh, four cards plus a coin, which gives you one temporary mana. Mana in this game works by giving you an increasing number of mana points to spend each turn. So on the first turn, you have one point to spend. The second turn, two. Third turn, three, capping at ten. Um, some cards, like the coin, will give you temporary mana, which can either bring you over that limit or refill up some of the ones you've already spent. Uh, cards in the game run anywhere from 0 to 20 mana cost. Uh, 
some of which are conditional upon field events. So the 20 mana cost is Molten Giants, and that one is going to cost one point less for every life point you have lost. Uh, both players have 30 life at the beginning of the game. The object of the game is to reduce the opponent to zero life. This is familiar smash him in the face game. But the strategy involved becomes very complicated, partially because the game is so simple at its core. Right? The mechanics are simple, but everyone's talking about how to beat one another. And there are entire communities built around doing this, and they do so very efficiently, and if you are even a little bit late to uh, adjusting to the current meta, right? the way things currently are going in the game at large, you can be in serious trouble. At the very least, you're going to hit a plateau. It's a very simple game to learn, very easy to pick up, and importantly, free to play. That's right, it's free. So you should probably take a look at it. Yeah, yeah, this game is incredibly uh, addictive. That's probably the best word to use. Um, you do need an internet connection to play, so if you have an iPad without the uh, 4G connection, you'll you know, play it at home. Um, it's available on, I guess, iPad, Mac, and PC now? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah. And Blizzard is currently trying to encourage players to meet face-to-face, -face, and so they've started this fireside chat promotion where you can get a special card back for your cards by playing with other people on the same network. Oh, cool. So there might be events uh, around that happening near you, so if you're interested in starting to play this game and getting to know other players, look for one of these fireside chats. Awesome, yeah. This is, um, it's kind of one of those cool games, because, you know, we talk a lot of it about uh, board games transitioning to the tablet. This is the other way around. This is a game that's designed with the tabletop in mind, but it's a game that couldn't really exist off the tablet. They could print it. It would be really hard to play printed, just because of the way the mechanics work. It wouldn't look nearly as cool. Um... Blizzard's put together something pretty cool here. It's very unique, and if you compare it to other collectible card games on the iPad, this one is leaps and bounds ahead of all of them. Oh, yeah, and I mean, the the most uh, wonderful part about it for me, the thing that they're doing that's most unique is, is this arena mode, because it's a draft-style tournament, essentially, where all the cards disappear at the end, but since they're not real cards, right, they can let you have anything, right? They just cycle through all the cards, and so every time it's a new... Uh, every time it's a new set of drafted cards, every time it's a new deck, every time everyone else is playing a new deck, right? Uh, it's a very well-designed game and a very well-designed game mode that takes advantage of both the card game-based nature of, of the game, right? And uh, also takes advantage of things that they can only do because it's virtual, right? Because it's online. Yeah, yeah. And if you know World of Warcraft and the Warcraft universe, you're going to love this because every card has that little bit of lore in there, all yeah. the characters from the game, which, I'll be honest, I don't really remember as many of these as I would have five years ago, but it's still pretty cool, because I do recognize a lot of the major characters and some of the jokes in there, Leroy Jenkins, and, you know, it's it's fun. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely know nothing about the World of Warcraft world. Um, the World of Warcraft probably could have stopped there. Anyway, I know absolutely nothing about the World of Warcraft, uh, but I enjoy the game straight through. I mean, and it's actually gotten me interested in certain parts of the lore, though uh, sometimes it's not been as, as deep as I'd been hoping. Um, and to point out, Chris is now playing this at the table. I just downloaded it. Your review is excellent, and it looks like a lot of fun. <clears throat> so it's a nice, really 
fun graphical design to it. Looks pretty simple as far as you're just getting a couple of cards. You can play a minion, you can play an attack spell, and having played all the original Warcrafts, kind of coming up to the world of Warcraft, it's really great to see all the characters. I'm, I'm actually really enjoying that part of it because I'm a big fan of the whole series and I recognize all these characters. So looking forward to playing it more. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that they did that's really creative uh, is there's been a long-known problem in any sort of online game. If you allow people to talk, they say mean things to one another. No! <laughs> I know. What? I know. Never. The internet, I thought, would only make us more responsible because what, besides, you know, total anonymity, right, should make you, you know, a nicer person, right? Anyway, what they've decided to do is take away the free speech option, right? You can't say anything you want. But they have given you some basic emotes that let you communicate most things you need to say. Communism. Communism, right? <laughs> Dictatorial communism. But it works really well in this case. Yes, it does. You can communicate cleanly with one another, um, though people have still found out how to be jerks using their limited six-word vocabulary. Um, Never underestimate people's ability to troll as much as possible on a game that's virtual or based in cardboard, because... I don't know. We're all trolls at heart. <laughs> because how dare you sit down to play a game with me? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Hearthstone. Hearthstone is awesome. Uh, we're all playing it, so... Shh! I'm playing! <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to the cardboard end of this podcast, however, before we can't come back at all, which is Blizzard's master plan. Are you, are you infer, uh, implying that there's some sort of Tron-like moment that's going to happen where we get pulled into Hearthstone? Just... That'd be kind of cool. I think it would be kind of cool. Yeah. Actually, Hearthstone, not so much, because all that world is, as far as I know, is a table and oh, yeah. cards. Yeah, but I mean, the table oh. is in the world of Warcraft, so you get off the table. <laughs> <laughs> I will be in a world where I will be killed immediately. Almost certainly. <laughs> all right, so let's move on to uh, some board games we've been playing lately. Um, but Hearthstone, very good. All of us recommend it as a play. Uh, there's nothing to buy, so you don't have to buy. But if it was, it would be a buy. All right, so uh, next up, we played a game that I've had for a little while the other night. Um, all, all of us sat down and we played Alumbra. And this is one of my favorite games. It's one of my wife's favorite games. We play it all the time. It's super simple. Um, and it comes out relatively frequently because it's so easy to teach. And it's so easy to have a conversation over. And it's uh, so accessible and just not very combative in the way of a lot of games like that um, and it plays up to five which is always nice which is, in my collection is very rare so um, basics of Alhambra if you've not played Alhambra is you're basically building a um, uh, you have a fountain and you're building your own little palace of sorts so every round you're going to have a certain number of cards in your hand and there's going to be a tableau of uh, currency you can buy in one of four colors or there are going to be tiles you can buy using that currency. So if you can purchase a tile, and it's going to be color-coded and have a number on it, you can, if you purchase it with exact change, you get to take another turn. So let's say you buy the um, tile that's sitting on the green space for five, and it costs exactly five, then you can buy the tile sitting on the yellow for six, and then you can buy the tile sitting on the blue for seven. Um, 
You can chain those together as much as you want until you clear the board. So you could buy up to four tiles per turn. And then at the very end, you can pull cards up um, to replenish your currency stock. And that is basically the entire mechanics of the game. Uh, you'll put these little tiles down around your fountain and try to build... Um, you're, you're trying to build the longest wall, but you're also trying to get the most of certain colors of tiles. But that's pretty much it. And it's so it's kind of this tableau building, solitaire style game. The only real combativeness comes up as if you want to buy a tile and someone else grabs it before you. But even then, like another one's going to come out of the bag, which might fit exactly what you need. So it's very simple. It's very quick. It took a little less than an hour to play. Um, it's one of the fastest games to teach that I own maybe five minutes at the most to show people how it works and it's it's one of those great games where you can just literally show them how it works in five minutes so i like it a lot i'm really glad i bought it um and you guys seem to like it as much so <laughs> it was a lot of fun yeah it was a great time uh it was a game i had seen before uh, i'd never played it before uh, so i can attest that it really is a very quick game to learn um, but i had seen it before and it looked kind of boring to me from a distance so I had been hesitant to play it, even when you pulled it out. I was just like, oh, I don't know, <laughs> I guess, if there's nothing else to do. Uh, but I got into it very quickly, and even though I was totally destroyed, absolutely destroyed by every other player at the table, it was a great time. And so <laughs> I, uh, I highly suggest picking up Alhambra. That might actually make it onto a, a to-purchase list for me. Oh, nice. I remember playing this game for the first time a couple of weeks back. And it does have that deceptive, simplistic quality to it. You're just putting out a couple of tiles, there's a couple of cards there, and it doesn't seem like there's really much game to it. But what's really fun about the game is it has a nice feel to it that you're not really kind of getting bogged down with AP. You're just kind of picking up some cards, you're picking up some money, you're waiting for that one moment. I think the last game we played, when we played all played together, Anthony was just kind of collecting money. I'm like, oh, look, Anthony's collecting some money. Oh, that's interesting. He's not really building anything. And then I think one turn he basically picked up all four tiles and money. He just kind of changed everything together because he was paying the exact amount for the for all the tiles and kind of ran away with victory at that point. And it's a lot of fun to see that kind of complexity in a real simple game that you can have some sort of tactics and strategy to the game and it's really nice and fun to actually build this little city up and kind of connect all the walls and wait for that right piece to kind of pop up. And the game's colorful, it's light, it's fun, and it has that variability to it where you're not exactly sure when those kind of score markers are going to pop up in the game. So it plays a little different each time. You could ramp up and try to score everything quick, or you can kind of wait to the end and score the more valuable colors. So... A lot of different types of gameplay for this. I might actually pick this up at some point. I've looked at this. I know there's a uh, Manhattan version of this game. So Anthony has the Alhambra. Maybe I might pick up the Manhattan version. But maybe not because there's a lot of interesting expansions to this game as well. That might be something that I might want to kind of jump into that doesn't come with the Manhattan version. Yeah, there's a few options if you want to pick it up. Um, there's the base game, just the normal one that I have. There is the Manhattan version. There is a nice deluxe board version where they've put... Because the, the base version basically has... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to straight up say it. They're kind of ugly. Uh, ugly scoreboard, ugly <laughs> tableau board where you put the tiles. 
Um, nothing pretty going on there. It's just very functional. There's a much prettier version that kind of incorporates everything. So the cards and the tiles are all on the board, and there's this nice score tracker along the outside of it. Um, and that's, you know, a slightly larger version. And then there's, like, the big box version that comes with the game and then all the expansions, too. So this being Queen Games, there are six different ways to buy this game if you want it. <laughs> um, probably the one you do want you won't be able to find because, again, this is Queen Games. Uh, but this is also Queen Games is really famous for their Kickstarters, which maybe you won't see the exact game you're looking for. But if it's one in their catalog, sometimes one of the Kickstarter levels to back actually has other <laughs> there are other games there too. So you're like, hey, this game seems interesting. What I could basically get the whole collection if I drop X amount of dollars on it. So good game, good quality. The components are really nice. I don't know. Would you say that you say you have to sleeve those cards? Nah. Nah? Nah. They're not pretty. And they don't really get played a lot, handled a lot. Yeah, and it's not like you're going to be able to mark them or anything, because they're just... There's four colors with a few different number possibilities on them. It's... I don't know. It's so simple that I don't think you would ever need to sleeve them. I think it would make it really hard to store it. It'd be a mess. Plus, the deck kind of sits there, so if you had to stack it all, it'd probably slide all over the place. Yeah. So, and sleeves are expensive. So. Oh, God. <laughs> so expensive. Let's trigger Daniel's PTSD. <laughs> uh, Post-traumatic uh, sleeping disorder. Nice. <laughs> I didn't think that far ahead. But <laughs> you got it. All right. So that's Alhambra. That's a fun game. Um, yeah. I mean, I would recommend if probably any gaming store on the planet has a copy of this, probably open so you can try it. Honestly, it's, it seems to hit every library I've seen. So if you're not sure, try it out. I'm sure a friend has it. It's one of those kind of classics. We've talked about this game a little bit in the past, but I never played it before, and I always said that, and I never had a chance to voice my opinion on the game. So I finally got a chance to try DC Deck Builder, um, and I played the Heroes Unite edition, which I'm sure is exactly the same as the base version. It is. <laughs> but uh, it was basically everything you described it as, and even a little simpler even. It was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun playing this game. Um, Nobody pulled all the rings, so that was good. But mm -hmm. the uh, <clears throat> the fellow we were playing with, Dan, almost did. He had two or three rings, and he had the Kyle Rayner card too, right? He did. Yeah. So I was oh. just trying to end the game, like clean out those villains as quickly as I could. <laughs> that, that's, that's a nightmare situation of just, oh, God. Yeah, and he knew it. He was going for it. It just happened that it was at the bottom of the deck, so I was like, it's going to come, it's going to come, and we just defeated all the super villains before it got there and it was a nice time because we actually got to play this game and another one we're going to be talking about at the 20 side store in brooklyn new york yeah yeah this is located in williamsburg so it's like 10 minutes from where i work um so i've just get off work meet you know meet there after work it's a lot of fun they uh if you're in brooklyn or if you're in the area they actually hold a raffle on board game nights which i think is thursday Yes. We were there Thursday. Mm -hmm. So you put in five bucks, and then towards the end of the night, they hand out $25, or probably depends on how many people put in money, but they hand, they handed out store credit to four people. So, And we should also mention the unique connection as far as, what was it, that other table all the way in the back that was literally sleeving that had to be oh a my thousand God. magic cards. They had it. They had this long, what had to be a 10-foot table yeah. set up with card boxes 
magic cards everywhere and just sleeving, sleeving, sleeving. And the funny thing was, one of the guys had like a bandana over like most of his face, so it kind of looked like he was <laughs> like he was cutting drugs or something in the back. It was like, don't go back there, man. They're just they're just doing some stuff. You don't want to be there. <laughs> yeah, I think the new set had just come out like that weekend before, so they were probably just cracking a case, but. It was kind of hilarious to watch them break that down. <laughs> it's what you'd always imagine happens, because, you know, then all the singles show up online. Like, you know somebody sitting in a dark room somewhere, cracking open cases of these cards. Um, watching it happen was kind of surreal. I saw that happen with Mage Knight back in the day, which Ooh. was particularly interesting, because, you know, they're full, like, figurines. Guy comes out with just this massive box full of Mage Knight and puts them down. Wow. And he got nothing. Oh, no. It was It was brutal. That is brutal. Uh, I saw somebody crack a case of baseball cards once, and it was the same thing. Like he had gloves on, he had this whole thing set up, like it was like felt on the countertop. So there's preparation that goes. People are intense. Well, because you pull something good, you don't want to like smudge it. (laughs) That's the whole point, right? Um, But yeah, that was pretty cool. DC deck builders. I mean, I'm considering picking up maybe not the DC deck builder, but I do like it. I'm looking at the Street Fighter version. Or one of their other 300 different versions of the same exact mechanic. Well, it's the same core mechanic, right? But they're really good at manipulating little bits of what the cards can do to give you a feeling of theme. Uh, and I think they're better at doing that than a lot of other companies are. I actually feel like Cryptozoic doesn't get the right amount of credit for how uh, talented they seem to be, at least to me, at adapting a basic, very simplistic mechanic to be thematic with... IPs of all different sorts. Yeah, I really don't have any problem at all with the mechanic. I actually quite like it. I know there's been a lot of talk. We talked about this podcast earlier about the different superhero types of games and where does DC Deck Builder fit, fit in. And Daniel, you and I have talked about this a little bit that we feel, and I want to speak for you, but you and I feel that the DC Deck Builder game really doesn't fit in as much as a superhero game it's more of just kind of a simple deck building type of game i know it's gotten a lot of play when you brought it out yeah uh i mean it's it's you know there are superheroes in it and i do think that the powers they develop are kind of thematic right the flash draws cards that makes sense to me right that's what the flash should do um but it isn't so much of of a superhero game like say sentinels where this is my hero and I will be this hero, right? It's it's much more of a uh, just a simple deck builder. I I always kind of think of it actually as like a comic with crossovers. That's how I think about the new characters coming up. As oh, and here's where the Flash comes to help Batman, who I'm playing, <laughs> and hits this guy in the face. Ha ha! Thank you, Flash. Right? Yeah. I mean, this it isn't as thematic as far as the mechanic is concerned. But the cards, and we talked about this a little bit before, the cards really do have a lot of flavor to them. I recently picked up the Lord of the Rings deck-building game. Haven't got a chance to break that out yet, but it's the same thing. You have these villains, so you kind of have the, the separate deck, and you have these cards that you're going to be choosing from. But i got to be honest, I know this is kind of like a little bit of a junk food type of, as far as board gaming is concerned, whereas an Agricola is like a meal, and this is just kind of like wow, this is really tasty kind of thing. I like playing them. I hate to say it, but I really do like playing them. And I, and I like the fact that you get all the flavors. We talked about Naruto coming out. Street Fighter just came out. There's also an expansion coming out for this as well, which is the Crisis expansion, Pack 1. So anytime you hear Pack 1, there's going to be multiple packs. So this is the 
the new 52, and it's actually going to let you play co-op. So like you were saying, Daniel, Cryptozoic is really looking at different ways to use this basic mechanic, and I'm really happy to see this. Yeah, I, I feel like people are too quick to write off Cryptozoic as just uh, copy and pasting, right? That is just using the same mechanic over and over again. And it's, you know, it's the same core mechanic, but you could say that about every single D20 role-playing game. What matters is how much attention you pay to fitting the, the fringes of the mechanic, right? Fitting the way that the cards actually end up playing to theme and to interesting, innovative play. And when we played Heroes Unite, it felt different to me than the core game, right? Not entirely, and I could see how I could mix them together if I wanted to, but, right, there were new mechanics, there were new card interactions, and, you know, I think they're much more creative than people give them credit for. Yeah, it's a good game. I had a lot of fun, and I avoided this game for a long time because it just looked too simple, but like Chris said, it's it's like junk food, man. It's really good junk food, and... I like the fact that there's so many different flavors to it, so you can actually get what it is that you're looking for as far as that's concerned. And the artwork is pretty good. So whether you're getting actually screenshots like you are with Lord of the Rings, or you're getting actual artwork from the DC deck building, or the Naruto, or the Street Fighter, there's something for everybody to play. Awesome. Also at the 20-sided store, we played another game. Um, This one is by Stefan Feld, and... In the last year or so, we've played a lot of Stefan Feld because he released so many games in the last year, but this one's one of his uh, earlier games, and it's called In the Year of the Dragon. Um, it's, as you might imagine, um, a Chinese theme uh, historically, and the goal of the game basically, and here's the theme as it was set up for us, you are trying to build a palace in ancient China, and you're trying to please the emperor, and somehow we already know in advance what 12 calamities are going to hit us over the course of a year so um, basically in the beginning of the game it's going to lay out these 12 tiles that are going to show you um, nine various events that are going to occur the first two months are basically going to be safe so everybody has a chance to build up whatever they need to build up but then the rest of the year um, things like droughts um, armies coming to town uh, fireworks festivals which are admittedly not a bad thing but you still have to build resources for it um, tax collection there's all these different things you have to be prepared for because in almost every single case if you're not prepared people die so <laughs> it's and basically what you'll be doing is you'll be recruiting people to your palaces and you'll be building out your palaces in between these events um, so it's a bit of a worker placement each round people you're going to put something down on one of these various action spaces based on who goes first um, and that'll change throughout the game based on the influence you have and then that'll allow you to take a certain action. Those actions involve things like um, taking rice if you have farmers, uh, getting coins if you have tax collectors, um, getting fireworks if you have the fireworks guy, whatever he was, uh, building onto your palaces. And then basically you have to be able to feed everybody in your palace at a certain point. You have to be able to... um, keep people alive if there's a sickness which requires you to have healers so it's a lot of balancing to make sure you have the resources you need when you need them but at the same time sometimes there are acceptable losses Um, if you know that say for example because you know it in what order these bad things are going to happen both of the pestilences have already passed so you come up to the point where you need to have food because there's a drought and you could go for more food but you see that you already have two food, 
and you only need two more, and you have two healers who you don't need anymore because the pestilence is already over. You can just let them die. Um, that's bit, you know, that's a lot of the strategy that comes into the game because you, while you do want to be prepared for everything, you can't be prepared for everything and still stand a chance in this game. You won't score any points. Um, so it has that Stefan Feld feel to it. I don't think it's nearly as tightly made as his newest games. Um, I'll be honest, I didn't really have a lot of fun with this game. It's I can see why people like it. I can see why this particular copy had been played like a thousand times. But I personally did not have fun. <laughs> it, it gave me that Agricola feel where it felt like everything I was doing was to keep from losing something. Um, I don't know. I don't like playing board games that remind me of real life. <laughs> like loss loss avoidance is not my idea of fun but I could see why people have fun there I don't know I mean Chris what did you think it's definitely a Stefan Feld game and if even if you didn't see the box itself you score a lot of points for doing a lot of different things there's a lot of choices as far as who am I going to put in my buildings which actions am I going to play and trying to think short term and long term so the components were nice. They were your standard kind of chits that kind of are decent quality, and the artwork was not bad. And our friend there at the 20 Side Die was nice enough to bring this out for us, and obviously this game has gotten a lot of play. And I don't know. It definitely has a good place as far as you're getting a random kind of selections of tragedies and things you have to kind of anticipate so it does have some sort of replayability to it and it's nice to see a game not placed in Europe for once so it was nice to see something a little bit different I don't know if the game has the complexity of his other games and it and if it does have the staying power now obviously this game has come out a lot of times so maybe it does have the replayability for it and it's definitely a Feld so if you like Stefan Feld this is just another one of his same games I think his mechanics have been better utilized in other games so while I would personally play this a game it's not a buy for me this would definitely be a play especially if it's kind of an introductory type of game for example like when I played I was, I think I was leading on the influence track the entire game, and while that's not necessary for a victory condition, it, it does allow me to do certain things like I get to pick and not have to pay gold to use somebody who's already been in, in play before, but it's one of those games where the guy we're playing with kind of understood that and kind of was way back in as far as popularity was concerned and kind of pulled out a major victory. So I'm wondering if there aren't some just key paths to victory that can't kind of be over overcome with different strategies or different tactics. So I'm looking forward to playing this again, but there's better Stefan Feld games out there. So um, Yeah, it's a dodge. This is not, I don't know. It feels like, you know how Dominion, when it first came out, was probably amazing. Everybody was all over it. And now you're like, why would you ever want to play Dominion when you could play any of these other games? <laughs> this is how I felt about this game. It's like, sure, maybe when it came out, it was like, oh, look, Point Salad, that's a new thing. Uh, but, like, every other Stefan Feld game I've played is better. I don't know why I would ever want to play this game again. It's not... I don't know. I did not have a very good time. And it was long. It was like two hours. Two and a half hours. It was really long. Hmm. 
and some of the some of the tactics as far as if you've already dealt with the famine already and everyone has farmers everyone's going to do something to get discard their farmers they're useless so i think like i said earlier i think at a certain point there's a strategy to this game based upon how things kind of lay out and I don't think there's much deviation from it. I think we were all kind of doing the same thing at certain points. I think some people kind of got a little wise to the to the the scale as far as what to do first and what to do second. But I think it's more math than art. You know what I'm saying about that? As far as, like, this is what you do. You get the, enough for this, and you knock off these characters. You pick up these characters, you knock them off, and you need X amount of gold to do this. So it wasn't really a lot of... It didn't have a lot of luck, or and I know Stefan Feld's games usually don't have that major luck component, but it didn't have that variability as far as yeah. the different players' tactics. Yeah, also it's not fun. <laughs> got that going. Well, that too. <laughs> it's just a grind, man. It was a grind, and the board's not very pretty. I could no. go on. No, I, I, This was a miserable experience. No, I, I would agree. I mean, it, it definitely does have those challenges. I think more of the challenge for me was the way the calendar was laid out with the events that were upcoming, it seemed like there was a mathematical type of formula to play out that if you if you understood what to buy and what to play when, that was all you needed to know. There really wasn't gameplay as far as I'll do this and I'll do that depend, depending on this, that, or the other. You know, it was laid out this way. So you must do this. You must pick him up now. You must drop him later. Then you must pick him up then. So, it didn't have that variability as far as Amerigo. It didn't have the challenge of when to play the characters in Bruges or to build the houses. So, it was kind of like, it was laid out there, you played it, and then you walked away. Yep. Yep, basically. <laughs> so DC Deck Builder was good, though. That, yeah. was, that was a good part of the night. I like that. What do you think, Daniel, after us, our rousing endorsement for In the Year of the Dragon? Uh, well, I was I, I'm less upset about not being able to go in you guys now. Like, this is true. Although if you'd been there, we wouldn't have been able to play it because we would have had too many people. Oh, it's all my fault. See, but it's always it's always good to play. And I just realized that, so now I'm mad at you. Oh god, <laughs> what have I done? What have you done? No, it's always good to get that uh, experience, I guess. But nah, dodge it. No reason to try this one. Get Amerigo, better game. Or Bruges. Or Bruges. Eh. Yeah, you're not a fan of Bruges. I like Amerigo better. Okay. Yeah. Bruges. <laughs> Bruges. Have you played any Stefan Feld games? I'm not sure. Okay. Have you played Bruges or Amerigo? No. Trajan? No. Mm, Castles of Burgundy? No. Oh, so we got to get one of these. Bora Bora? Okay. No. <laughs> we got to get at least one so you have some context. So I know who the hell Feld is. Yeah. Except for this guy that everyone keeps saying, you know Stefan Feld. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally, no, man. No, man. He's, he's I play board games. <laughs> I, I game with the board. Yeah. We'll play Bruges. Because all of his games have the same basic idea, so you'll get the idea. All right, so that's everything we played this week. Next up is our big feature review of Myth. And now for the feature review. Some have doubted its existence. Others have held on to the belief that it has persisted through all time. But all agree that it is a myth. Our feature review this week is Myth, the board game. 
This is one of the games that I circled around at least a half a dozen, dozen, maybe two dozen times at PAX. It is basically um, a dungeon crawler. So there, you're going to get a bunch of minis out of the box, a bunch of chits. Uh, it's a modular board with various bits of dungeon tiles and different sizes, ranging from 12 by 12 to 6 by 4 to 4 by 4. Um, that's all the nitty gritty of you know the things that come to help you set it up. The actual game itself, when you boil it all down and ignore all the rules, uh, is basically you are heroes. There are five of them. You can choose. Everybody picks one. They're all your archetypes from Dungeons and Dragons lore. Um, everybody's going to pick one. You have your archer. You have your acolyte. You have, which basically you have, you know, your ranger, your thief, your monk, your warrior, the uh, the mage. And each of these characters has something unique. They each have their own deck of cards that you're going to be drawing from, and that's where all your abilities are going to come from. Um, and every round you're going to move, and you're going to attack. And then you're going to attack the darkness, which Daniel thought was awesome. Yes, I've been wanting to do that my entire life, <laughs> and I finally got to actually attack the darkness. So the darkness is basically... All the enemies in this game, the theme of it being that this darkness has descended upon the world and is taking over creatures and humans and various, you know, baddies of different sizes and disgustingness. Um, they are guarding treasure, they are blocking paths, they are poisoning, they are attacking, and you're going to go in, you're going to destroy them, and you're going to complete various quests. Um, the game is extremely freeform. There are quests. You're going to draw, you know, you can play the story quests, which have a story with multiple acts in it, or there are chapter quests, which basically mean you just get to pick one um, and play that chapter, which is just a short session you can play. So if you play the longer story version, there are a few story modes in here, and you can play, they're about two hours each, and it's probably, you know, a good 20 in there total, so you could get 30, 40 hours of gameplay out of this just playing the normal campaign out of the box. But what makes the game really unique is kind of that freeform nature. You basically get to decide in a lot of cases how many enemies you're going to face, where they're going to be on the board, um, how many treasures you're going to go after, what size tile you're on, where the layers go. There are some restrictions. It'll tell you there's you know lines on the board where you can put the layer. There are a certain number of enemies you have to have. There are maximum number of enemies you can have. But there are lots of different things you get to decide as a group and because the game is a full cooperative dungeon crawler there's no you know it's not like descent where there's a somebody an overlord that you're trying to defeat you're not playing against anybody it really is a group decision you can decide hey we want to get some more gear let's throw a ton of enemies out there and you know grind them a little bit or we just want to get through this chapter let's make it as easy as possible so we can get to the next bit of the story that is a really unique part of the game i thought that was pretty cool i think if you play it right it could be a lot of fun um the game itself has a ton of mechanics involved if you want to dig into all of them we did not in our initial playthroughs we played it pretty simple um but in terms of you know, items you can pick up. There's merchants you can meet and buy items from. You can sell items to get currency. Um, you know, playing through the entire game, every bit is involved. It almost feels a little bit like Diablo on a board game, just hack and slash grinding. And you're building your own story, basically. You're not actually, you can decide where you go. You can decide how many enemies you hit. You can change the difficulty level at any point and go in and just take on 
innumerable ungodly enemies who are just going to bash your face in <laughs> repeatedly until you get that one piece of epic loot. Um, and that's kind of what draws draw me, drew me to the game and draws so many other people to the game. Unfortunately, and this is where everybody can jump in if you want, this game has one of the worst rule books you're ever going to see. This rule book is... I don't... I don't... I mean, I read it. I'm not entirely sure I understood it. But this is one of those games where read through the rule book once, immediately went to watch a couple videos, went back to the rule book again to clarify, still wasn't 100% sure what we were doing, and then kind of freeformed it the rest of the way. So we might have played 70% of the rules. Um, so this is not going to be like your full definitive review of this game, if only because I don't feel like we've got the full feel and flavor of the game. Um, and But the reason we're talking about it is I think that's probably a very common experience coming right out of the box, just based on the way the rules are written. This book is 60-plus pages. Um, there are mechanics that are mentioned, not clearly detailed. There are references that don't quite make sense. There are uh, scenarios that are written in a way that doesn't quite follow through. I'm sure if you read this book very carefully two or three times, you'd probably figure it out, but nobody wants to do that. So part of it comes down to the, um, the freeform nature of the game. Like the book is trying to give you the freedom to do these things in the way you want to do them, but it doesn't, it still needs more structure. The thing about myth and a lot of games like myth, and we talked about a meeting a designer who was doing another dungeon crawl type of game where you were kind of playing that RPG type of element to it, which this game kind of invokes kind of your Dungeons and Dragons 4th edition as far as there is a story to it and the story kind of matters but the story is just there to deliver the action which is a lot of hack and slash as Anthony was saying the brilliance of this game is it the components right the miniatures are great the board's great the cards are great the artwork is nice the graphic design has a good quality to it I thought the, the text was a little small but in general, this game is here for you to create an almost unlimited number of different stories, games, universes, complex scenarios. It's kind of like a box of fun. So here's a box of fun. Great. You know what comes with a box of fun? A rule book that cannot explain the box of fun. Because nothing <laughs> can explain the box of fun. Because the box of fun is an unlimited box of fun. At the same time, if we look at this as a pure board game, it doesn't meet the quality of some of the other games out there just because it's trying to be a box of fun. You know, it's trying to be this sandbox video game version where, hey, you can do anything you want. Awesome. But I just want to play a game. Yeah, but you can do all these things and it's got these components and you can throw all these guys. Uh, yeah, but I want to play a game. Sure, but you can have these miniatures, it's got the big miniatures, and you can... Alright, but I just want to play the game. So, it's not a bad thing. The brilliance to the game as far as being a box of fun is awesome. The downplay to it is you do kind of get... You get you hit a kind of a swamp as far as what is, what is the creation you're looking to play. Now, I'm sure this is one of these games where once you've mastered the box of fun you can really put down a great scenario with nice twists and characters and creations and epic loot because I really like that part of it that we were kind of 
upgrading our character as time was going on. But, I don't know. I mean, if you really want the RPG kind of flavor to it, you should probably go ahead and play Dungeons & Dragons. Maybe, I mean, this is more of a 4.0, but maybe a 3.5 is maybe more of the story mode to it. Or if you really want the more of the really kind of straightforward board game kind of version, maybe Castle Ravenloft in the Dungeon Dragon series or Legend of Dritz, that might be a little more straightforward as you put the tiles out and it really has a straight rail kind of play to it. But then again, at the same time, you kind of go back and forth because the components are such high quality, the design is great, the box is awesome. It has so much goodness to it that... I'm wondering how many of hours of gameplay would take for you to kind of reach a level where you were like, I get it now. Yep. Yeah, uh, for me, it hits an uncomfortable medium between role-playing games and board games. It's, uh, <laughs> and I'm not sure it's a thing I, I want anymore. I thought it was, so, I always thought it was something I want. I played some of the Grits games. They were pretty good, but that's because they went strong board game, pretty much cut the role-playing out. If I wanted to pin a game that would, be to me myth's closest competitor actually this might be a little odd but it's going to be betrayal at the house on the hill the modular tire tile layout though i think betrayal handles that more interestingly but the idea of you pick up these equip pieces of equipment as you go around there's this sort of narrative that emerges or at least there can be if you're playing betrayal right i don't know why i'm pointing accusingly at a microphone because you can't see that now can you imagine though that i am pointing at you and the fourth wall comes down. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if you want to play a role-playing game, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of wonderful systems. If you want to play a rules-light role-playing game, let me suggest anything based off Apocalypse World, including Dungeon World and Dungeon Planet, which will give you the same sort of feel you're looking for. Um, and, you know, Pathfinder from D&D, of course, would be great. Uh, I'm just having trouble finding a place in my heart that isn't already full, that Myth wants to, to live, right? And it's a pretty pricey game. Um, 80 bucks. 80 bucks. It, it's a beautiful, right? The components are beautiful, and I see what they're trying to do. Uh, and I'm definitely going to give it a couple more shots before I'm willing to stick with my discomfort here, because, you know, a, as we were saying earlier, we did not play all the rules, and we played a really short session, and I get the feeling that what this is better at is at longer campaigns it kind of makes me feel like in its ideal form it almost be like gauntlet the board game i think that's what they're going for yeah it's i i feel the same mild discomfort as you um not quite as uncomfortable i like the idea of like a role like a board game where people can role play and i think you kind of almost they didn't write it like that there is lots of flavor text in the story chains. There's a lot of um, act cards and story cards for the quests. Uh, there's a lot of flavor to each of the characters. They're very, very different. Each of the characters is very different because each have their own deck of cards. But I think because of the freeform nature of the game, if someone does not take over and tell a story here, it could devolve quickly into just that typical co-op of everybody's APing the game together, because it is a co-op, and you all go together, and you all decide what you're going to do in that order. Um, and then it just turns into a crunch fest, and that's not what the game's supposed to be. So I think the way the game is built requires that DM type of role from somebody that the game doesn't really quite integrate fully. 
um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, it's not built with that in mind, but it needs to be there to make the game more fun. At least that's how my impression of it. And, and this is, I think, probably the biggest place where it diverges from board games in general to me is this is a game where even if you're doing all the rules right, you can still play it wrong. Right? You can still play it in a way that's not really capturing the essence of what it's trying to be. And that's where I think you start seeing the role-playing game aspect, right? If you just play a role-playing game and all you're doing is playing the rules, it's probably not going to be that fun. Um, and so I do think there's a, a fair portion of my discomfort here. I'm starting to backpedal because I think, well, maybe it really was that I didn't, you know, give myself over to myth, right? Maybe I didn't really commit to the sort of elaborate campaign with role-playing and back and forth and becoming attached to characters that maybe myth is trying to help me do. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of the feeling I have. I still want to play it. Yeah. I had fun. Um, I'm glad I picked it up. I, you know, I'm a... You know, I buy these mini games. I want to paint them. I've already washed some. I'm going to prime them. I'm going to paint them. They're beautiful miniatures for a board game. Uh, slightly above normal board game quality. Far above a lot of other board games I have. They're not quite miniature quality. Like say something like, you know, the, the pewter minis or even you know like bones level. But they're really good. So that's a big plus. Some of them are huge. They already have a few expansions out, too, with other darkness decks, which basically means other bosses you can fight, and that's awesome. Um, and I know they have a bunch more coming out, and I believe they're working on a second Kickstarter for the fall, which will be, like, Wave 2. So just another set. So if this keeps going and they keep building on it, it could end up being this ongoing, scenario-heavy type of, you know, almost... I'm not going to say open world because it's a very closed world, but this open system of sorts the thing that i think they need to do and this again it's a freeform game i would even be happy playing the way we played it you know missing if some of the item rules and some of the uh, you know the merchant aspect or even the story quest aspect which we just didn't quite get to um but they need to have something like say you picked up this game or you have some friends coming over you just want to do a quick start of the game where do we start which quest do we start with some kind of starting quest because even the most crunchy video games in the world have like a tutorial and then a quick start that shows you all the mechanics of the game even tells you what your options are the book does not have that it walks you through the cycles of the game it shows you how every mechanic works everything is in here it just does not put it in an order or a layout that makes it feasible to actually sit down pick up the game and run through it we were constantly referencing this book despite the fact I'd read it a couple times and watched a video. Um, I think that's a big problem. And it is a board game, so it's not a role-playing game where you should be doing that. Um, I don't want to feel like a DM DMing a game. It's a board game. So that, that to me, is the biggest weakness of this game after initial playthrough. It's not going to stop me from playing it, but it's definitely an issue. If And this is what happens with this type of game, like I said it's one of those kind of transition kind of you know kind of reaching over the aisle a little bit so it has that rpg element has that board game element it wins at both and and at the same time loses at both so i think this is one of these games that you need to approach not as a board gamer but as almost like as anthony was saying like as a dm like i need to invest time and effort to create scenarios look at all the pieces the components and try to craft a game for those people that are coming to play based on their skill level based upon the time that we have to play because even the initial scenario was kind of fun 
and I can see the genius to the game as far as all that you can do with it, as far, especially leveling up your characters, because even getting the special equipment was really nice, and being able to roll the dice based upon the special equipment was nice without having to have that complexity of, well, the armor class is this, and I have this type of modifier, and the creature has this modifier, and I gotta carry the four, and I get to roll a d4, and a d... It's just, sometimes it's a little too much. So, if you approach this as far as I don't know, almost like a campaign. Like, I really got to kind of delve into this. And as Anthony was saying, there are so many future components coming out for this, and the miniatures are just outstanding that this could be the centerpiece of your game collection as far as, hey, I'm the myth guy, I'm going to bring this game, and we're going to have an epic night of adventure. But it's definitely not going to be, hey, let's play myth amongst the other board games that we have to play this yeah, night. Yeah, there'll be a myth night. There'll be myth night. Yeah, you can't bring this to like, the game store and be like, oh, what do you want to play? Let's play myth, because it's... No. <laughs> I mean, they say each story quest takes about an hour, or two hours. Uh, but the setup, and then if you have new players, you're looking at three, so... I would say this game, as far as the spectrum, it's definitely more of an RPG as than is Castle Ravenloft and Dritz. More of an RPG as far as Descent. It has more of that kind of open world kind of feel to it. So if you played Descent and Descent 2, obviously, and if you played the other ones and you're looking for something more with that RPG D&D element to it, I think Myth is definitely the way to go for you. I think I'm going to want to see more of how it plays out uh, when we put more into it. And I'm going to want to see how these expansions come out because that's going to be a big decider for me about its overall value in, in, in my game collection uh, and, and how much effort I'm willing to invest learning that rather large rule book. Yeah, you don't want to read this. Yeah. <laughs> There's no reason to read this. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're not going to throw a score at this because it's not we haven't played it enough. But what I would like to do um, is over the course of the next few weeks, we'll maybe get it back to the table, we'll play it again. Maybe start one of these story quests and see how it goes. That'd be a lot of fun. Multiple I'd... phase, yeah. And then we'll we'll do a write up of it, or we'll even come back to the podcast and do like a second take, um, because I don't think we can do it justice just saying, "Oh, this is our first impression, and this is what we think." Um, the rule book thing that we can say that definitively, because it is an issue. If you look on Board Game Geek, we're not the only people complaining about this, but the game itself, there's a lot here, and I want to explore it and have more fun with it. So, and I'm also going to be painting the miniatures a little bit, so I'll, I'll try to post some pictures of that so you can see what these things look like because they're awesome. All right, so that was our feature review for Myth. Yes. All right, guys, so that's everything for this episode of the inaugural Dice Tower Network edition of Board Gamers Anonymous. Uh, do not forget, you can follow us on Twitter at BGA Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash Anonymous. We have our very own website where you'll find all of our past episodes and show notes and soon-to-be uh, multiple articles when we start writing a lot of new content and posting pictures of what we're playing, what we're painting, what we're doing as gamers. And that's BoardGamersAnonymous.com. And then you have to check out our Board Gamers Anonymous guild on Board Game Geek. So that is everything for this week. This is Anthony. This is Chris. And this is Daniel. And until next time, we'll save you a seat at the table. I'm not reading this rule book again. Do <laughs> a volunteer. I'll take a look at it. Anybody, anybody, anybody. <laughs>
heavy. I know I'm kind of fun. So I have a weird habit of collecting uh, eccentric role-playing game rule books. I don't know if you guys are oh, really? interested in doing casts of, like, I've got one Delirium with his fairies in the modern world. I've got one with his feng shui, with his really got an interesting world of bizarre mechanics. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.